Hello, this is an audio version of a lockdown special live video stream, which you can still find on British Canoeing's YouTube and Facebook channels. Hey, hello, welcome everyone. Good evening and welcome to the Paddlecast. If this is your first episode, welcome along. Thanks for coming on board. Um, and if you're not new to this and you've been around for the last six weeks, you'll know how awesome it's been. We've had some amazing guests. Uh, we've done all sorts. We've been uh, speaking to people from the CEOs of British Canoeing to extreme kayakers, world champions, women's ambassadors, Bill Bailey, all sorts of people. We talked about plastic pollution. We talked about paddling, training, techniques, the future of paddling equipment. We've done amazing and it's been super cool. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in. And also thank you, everybody, who's been listening again uh, online as well. That's really, really appreciated. So tonight we've got a really interesting uh, guest and, you know, we're not messing around here tonight. These guys are really super interesting. We're going off in a completely different direction. We're going to be talking really in an area that's kind of related to the Clear Access, Clear Waters campaign that British Canoeing have been pushing recently and I've been trying to get involved in as well. And that's really about fair, shared and sustainable access to English waterways. And so... You know, to be fair, my own paddling has been mostly done on artificial courses or, or, or rivers that are pretty much uncontested. But I know that there are places that a lot of us will paddle that it's not as simple as that. And one of the interesting things to know is that we do face this issue as a community of not being able to kind of go on all the rivers that are out there and all the, on all the uh, areas of, of water. So, you know, it's super cool to have these guests here. And I've got to be honest you know, we're talking about access and, 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 and stuff tonight. And I sort of see it to myself, this is a big deal for some people. I don't see it as a big deal. You know, these places should be available and out there for us all to enjoy. And I kind of think that it's really important, especially now we're really valuing these opportunities to get out and about. So basically, we're here tonight going to talk about all sorts of things. But, you know, the right to paddle on waterways has been this big debate for decades you know it's been going on for a while and uh, you know tonight we're going to talk a little bit about access on the water but even the more wider topic about who owns the land around us and the two guys that I've got here tonight are called Guy and Nick so good evening guys and uh, welcome to the Paddlecast it's lovely to have you along uh, Nick will you tell us where you're coming from tonight please Oh, I'm coming from uh, my girlfriend's uh, parents' house in Sussex at the moment in battle. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, by the way, as well. Thanks for having us on. No, it's wicked to have you along, man. And what about you, Guy? Where are you at? Uh, I am at home in Southwark, uh, next to a railway here. Not a lot of green uh, space outside my window, uh, but very interested and happy to be here tonight to talk about land and access to green space. Oh, man, it's an absolute pleasure. You guys, are, you know, I've been learning a little bit about what you've been up to, and I'm looking forward to, to sharing that and, and, and you guys to talk a bit about what you're up to. So just going to introduce you a bit more properly now. So Guy, Guy Shrubshaw, he's an environmental campaigner, an investigator and an author. His first book, Who Owns England? explores the dark secret of land ownership in England and how who owns this land has huge repercussions for the climate and ecological emergencies, the housing crisis and social inequality. So it's really interesting work. And he works for Friends of the Earth, but currently, um, at the moment, he's speaking in his personal capacity. So it's really great, great to have you here, Guy. And I guess the uh, the book, Who Owns England, is really kind of just 
well, I just went on the website and, and, you know, shout out for anyone who wants to have a quick look at that. There's some super interesting articles on there and I can't wait to actually explore that myself. It's really interesting. And so coming on to Nick, Nick Hayes, he's an author and illustrator and he's published four graphic novels, all exploring the relationship of human beings and their environment. His most pre recent project, excuse me, is The Book of Trespass, which is due to be published later this year. So you can have a quick look at that on the internet as well. And I've got to tell you some of the illustrations uh, that Nick has done. I, I'm, I'm not an artistic sort of person, but when I saw some of them, really beautiful and they've got wonderful, I don't know, style is all I can say because I just don't have the words to describe them. Very, very cool. But Nick basically uh, discovered kayaking about five years ago in a cheap inflatable kayak. And uh, so that's kind of an interesting way into the sport that I guess a lot of people share. And his adventures uh, in paddling along rivers in the south of England are subjects of one of his <coughs> chapters in one of his books called Toad. So that would be quite cool to find out a bit about that perhaps. So, but together, Guy and Nick have basically been working as a sort of dynamic duo, uh, trying to expose the truth of land ownership in England and how it affects, you know, our society. And they'll say, you know, we all know, you know, they're explaining how this, um, that we have little, well, fewer and fewer rights, actually, to access the land that we live on, you know, this, this, this world. So they've been working on this campaign to kind of uh, highlight the physical, mental and spiritual health benefits of access to nature, which we talk about quite a lot in the, in the Paddlecast. And we they were also really keen to expand the Countryside Rights of Way Act into to allow more rivers and lakes and open spaces, more access to them. So, guys, you guys are all over it. You're on it. And it's just so cool to have you here. So I'm just going to start. I'm, I'm going to say, oh, well, let's start with Guy. Um, how did you get interested in this topic of, of land ownership? Because it sounds, uh, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing to be interested in because I guess not many people would think about that. How did you How did you get into that? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think it started actually a long time ago. I grew up in a little town called Newbury, um, which was so good they had to put a bypass around it. Uh, doing that when I was growing up there at the tender age of 10, um, I used to go for lovely walks in the countryside, beautiful around the, around the town. And um, then they, the government announced that they were going to put a nine mile bypass through uh, all this countryside, um, across the River Kennel, um, you know, through four sites of special scientific interest. Uh, and, and they did all this, you know, so, so shave a few minutes off car, car journeys. But obviously what they were doing, they were doing it, putting it through land that was owned by some very large estates uh, that owned the land to, to that side of Newbury. And I guess later in life, sort of thinking back on it, um, since become an environmental campaigner and, you know, was partly because of seeing that destruction um, at, at an early age uh, in my life and uh, started to reflect back later in life about who owned the land um, around where I grew up. Uh, and I found out that it was actually owned by an incredibly small number of people that only 30 or so landowners own half the whole of West Berkshire, like the entire county. Um, so, so it just sort of felt so, so unequal and, and like clearly that they had uh, allowed that to happen despite, you know, sort of professing their stewardship of the land. Um, and so I started looking to it and then I realised that actually to discover and, and answer the really simple question of who owns England is actually incredibly difficult. Um, and that sort of got more interested because I was like, well, why is it so hard to find an answer to this really quite simple question. Um, started looking into it, you know, there is a government uh, body called the Land Registry, uh, which is meant to be the, the official registry of who owns land in England and, and also in Wales as well. Um, and, and yet it's not finished its job. 
it was set up in 1862 and it still hasn't finished the task <laughs> doing all the land in this country. Um, the fact that it has registered, um, you have to pay three pounds to find out who owns a single field or property. And that might not sound like too much uh, money, uh, uh, but when you look at the whole picture, there's 24 million land titles in England and Wales that you'd have to spend three pounds on each of them. So do the maths, something like 72 million pounds that you'd have to spend to find out who owns all of that. And if you yeah. tried to you know, reveal that in any serious way, you know, by publishing it, Ordnance Survey currently would um, see your ass off because they, they don't want you to reproduce that information. So that is oh. that is really at the heart of why I am got really interested in this and, and why I'm concerned about it. Wow, that's, yeah, that's kind of got all sorts of questions. And I'm sure people, are, you know, if you've just joined us, we've got Nick Hayes and Guy Shrobshaw on us. Thanks for coming here, um, everyone watching. We're talking basically about land and how, who owns the land and who finds it and this, how this relates to access, especially in terms of canoeing. So, oh, wow, Guy, that's super interesting. And Nick, what about you? Because you're an illustrator and I can see your work is quite a lot to do with, um, um, some, some political stuff in there but also very lots of natural stuff how did you get involved uh you know with this kind of battle i suppose for 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 land access or land you know to yeah to be able to go where we want yeah it, it is a kind of a battle uh and i didn't realize that when i first started hopping fences basically as an illustrator just to go sketching um, and I grew up uh, down the road from Guy, though we never met at that time. I was in uh, another part of West Berkshire. And we've got a recreation ground in the village that I drew, but that's just flat and boring. Uh, so I would go into the woods or go down to the river or um, <coughs> start hopping some of the deer fences or uh, some of the brick walls that were around. Um and then, you know, it doesn't too, take too long to realise that you've entered a battleground and the way that the gamekeepers uh, approach you or the way that the fishermen approach you or the way that uh, the bailiffs approach you, um, it's kind of disproportionately aggressive uh, to what I was doing quite peacefully an hour or three hours before they turned up. Um, and so bit by bit, uh, just like Guy was talking about, I started to for me it was more i started to wonder what kind of magic what kind of spell uh operated on you know a fully grown adult with my own free will and my own sense of uh right or wrong for someone to say you're trespassing uh and in a variety of ways to basically tell me to f off how come they could i just didn't really what kind of weird voodoo was this that uh managed to pack up my pencil case, fold shut my sketchbook and get me to go back home. Mm. Um, and the answer is, you know, a millennia, uh, a millennium uh, old uh, and very interesting. And, and actually, just as just as it is unfair, uh, completely unsubstantiable, uh, like uh, even on its own logic, it falls flat on its face. Uh, but it's become such a sort of time weathered orthodoxy in England uh, that even though it's completely different just over the border in Scotland uh, and all around us in Europe uh, and certainly with rivers even in America and Australia etc uh, the English have somehow uh, grown up accepting that nature is not for us um, which is mental. <laughs> so I mean it, it, so you said something about a logic being completely wrong just tell me about that because that that made me you said it was it was twisted and totally wouldn't, wouldn't stand up 
Yeah, so obviously to trespass the legislation is actually uh, quite vague. It exists in quite a, um, a sort of murky grey ground, exactly, you know, specifically what you are and uh, are not allowed to do. Uh, so to find the origins of trespass, like when did trespass start being mentioned as, a, um, you know, something contravening the law, um, you have to go a long way back. Uh, but really, it was in um, uh, the sort of 1600s. Uh, it was John Locke. Uh, it was Thomas Hobbes. It was Samuel Puffendorf, Hugo Grotius, a number of uh, uh, amazing lawyers. names. These guys, I'm sure, there must be well, amazing people before. You yeah, start yeah, that. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Like uh, they're, they're all sort of old-fashioned Puritans, basically. I think is is the sum of it. Um, and specifically. Uh, I would say the the notion of because uh, it's not private property as such that we have that either me or Guy have an issue with. It's it's the um, it's the peculiarly English aspect of private property that allows you uh, full use uh, of the land uh, and which gives you fundamentally not just the right to destroy what you own, your sabutendi, but mm. also the right to exclude every other person. Uh, from the kind of you know mental and physical and even spiritual health benefits that we can all get from nature. Exactly. Mm. Um, I can see you nodding there. Go on, guy, because it, it's really something is about exclusion, right? And that that's pretty tough. Yeah, sure. And I mean, Nick was explaining it brilliantly, but just to sort of add, I guess, it, and this this is something that goes back a long way into our history, as Nick has said, has been sort of justified by philosophers over the years. Over the, over the centuries, you know, people like John Locke, as I think you, you mentioned, Nick, sort of saying that the ownership of land, uh, you know, is, is, is an absolute, is exclusive, exclusionary uh, right of possession, um, which just does seem wrong. I mean, you know, obviously, sure, uh, we all, like, wouldn't be questioning, like, the right to privacy in your own home or, you know, the right to own possessions. I mean, some might, but we're not. And, 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 and what we're talking about here is, what 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 gives that right to uh, an aristocrat or a, or a city banker to own not just a garden and a, and a private property but ten thousand acres from which they can exclude everyone else? That 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 seems to be the kind of the heart of the issue here. Yeah, it strikes me. I've heard a sort of undertone of you know injustice. Really, you know, it's like what you know, what's your fair share, right? And you know, we we can all have a bit of a share, but then the rest we should share out. I kind of feel is my sort of. Greg Wilson here saying the aggression is very real and completely unacceptable. And I guess, you know, it sounds like Nick, you were kind of the butt of that. Have you had these experiences as, as well, um, Guy? Where have you been kind of given the marching orders? I'm trying to think when recently. Oh, well, I mean, actually, Nick and I both went to uh, on a visit to probably one of the most secretive um islands in uh, in england at least which was the Ooh. military island of foulness off the coast of essex um and so we were we were kind of uh, subjected to some a uh, bit of power tripping there by by the by the, the security guards who were sort of saying you can't come onto this island apart from between the hours of 12 noon and 4 p.m uh you know you can't take any photos because of the military bylaws uh and if you haven't got a cycle helmet with you then you're definitely not coming on um, which I didn't have, so I was uh, fortunately we were able to persuade them of that slight transgression of the law. But yeah, I mean, I obviously, understand with you know military sites that's a particular thing. But I, I, it, it runs you know much deeper than that. It goes it goes to all places. It's you know, gamekeepers or, or you know land agency might come up to you and sort of say, my managers might come up to you and say, 
um, what are you doing here? Can I help you? I think is is the refrain that you talk about. Oh here. yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that old chestnut. So, you know, I think you alluded to it earlier. Um, that is England really as bad as you're making out? Because it strikes me, you know, even in Scotland, it's really refreshing. You can just go, you can just see, and you can go. And I love that thing about Scotland. You can't go too near people's, you know, property and houses, which is fine. You know, that seems quite reasonable. And I think you alluded to other countries around the world. Is it just us that's weird here? <laughs> uh, whoever, yeah, Guy, I don't know. Yeah, go for it. Whoever wants to say. Well, certainly in terms of uh, land ownership and the concentration of land ownership um, and how, how that impacts. So, so in, in England, um, by the best estimates I've come up with in my book, 1% of the population of England owns half the land here. Wow. Um, it's actually even worse in Scotland. There's something like 400 landowners own half the private land in Scotland. Um, but yet they have, as you said, as you mentioned, a different system when it comes to access to that land. So they have full right to roam uh, with obviously very sensible exclusions around, around people's gardens and, and uh, cultivated fields and so on. Whereas here we have, we have a right to roam, which was brought in 20 years ago by the Countryside and Rights of Way Act, but it actually is a very partial right to roam. It's a, Kind of typically English thing that we've settled for, for for a very small crumb of actually what many other places have, and we have a right to roam on just about eight percent of the land in England. When you look at all of that moorland and mountain and open access land that was opened up, and it was wonderful that it was opened up twenty years ago, but unfortunately, it's only still about eight percent, and it gets even worse um, when we're talking about rivers and waterways. So I don't know, uh, uh, if Nick, you want to talk a bit about that. Yeah, go for it, Nick, because that's kind of where I'm coming at. Because, you know, this is really interesting because this is about a kind of mindset, right? And a sort of uh, way of seeing everything, the world or the, you know, what is basically ours and what is mine, you know? What about water? Yeah. Well, water's, I mean, I feel very positive about water because the, uh, the situation is so damn... Uh, extreme that uh, it, it would take any I mean anyone could see that it, it it's nowhere near fair let alone just um, in waters it's by my calculation it's three percent of waterways that were allowed access to and most of those are canals uh, so like I've kayaked uh, I've kayaked the canals of London uh, loads and they're just manky compared to some of the rivers uh, that that I have kayaked that I'm not allowed to. Um, but the situation with uh, the situation with England in terms of water access is even more absurd because America, which you might think with all its guns and its private property and its sort of, uh, you know, libertarian aggression, uh, still has a right for anyone to access uh, navigable waters. Uh, the same with Australia and both of them uh, their law uh, is based on English common law. So what that does suggest that just out of the three of us, England, America and Australia, uh, we're the only ones that have interpreted our own common law uh, as a uh, as uh, essentially the, the bottom dollar is exclusion. And, wow. uh, um, you know, but for the occasional... Uh, sort of navigation act from the you know the 17th century or something which will specifically say this area of this river or this whole river but mm. for that it's just assumed uh that you don't have a right of navigation 
But the question, of course, is who has assumed that uh, and who has shouted that the loudest? Uh, mm. Because actually, when you look into the law, it's very fuzzy indeed. Um, and that's where the that's where the tension uh, comes yeah. from. Or you might say some of the fun, I guess, for what you guys are exposing into that. So, yeah, I've got a question from Pete Astors, who's a friend of mine, a good, good guy. And he's really interested in this because he's actually in a bit of a, a bit of a campaign to open up the River Derwent, which is just uh, down away from me uh, in Derbyshire. So he's basically he's getting harassment on a daily basis from the angling club bailiff outside of his house. They don't even own the land, just the fishing rights. They are bullies and they are unreasonable. They are purposefully trying to hassle me so that much that I don't go there anymore. But he's not standing up for it by the sounds of things. And, you know, that sounds really interesting, you know, because it can be some kayakers have a real canoeist paddle, paddle boarders, you know, get quite a bit of grief about it. And what's really remarkable here, it's blown my mind, is you're saying that actually America, Australia and the UK, we've all got actually the same law started out with. And then we ended up in this really different situation that's remarkable a question from chris appleby has just come in kind of related on this here let me see if i can get out there so yeah this might be i don't know if it's technical but please if you, if you don't know the answer that's cool but i'm interested it says if the water belongs to everyone can i fish from my kayak as long as i have a rod license and i'm not using the bank so therefore he's not trespassing because that you know it's the water right who owns the water that's just passing through that land well guy can tell you who owns the water because that's absurd uh, go on. <laughs> go Who on, owns go the on. water, guy? Oh, the crown, isn't it? Yep. <laughs> yep. So the crown owns the water, but the actual riverbed may may well be owned by uh, the adjoining the adjoining um, properties. Uh, in some cases, uh, it's owned by. I don't know the situation in your uh, in, in Chris in Chris's circumstances, I'm afraid, but but obviously in some cases it's. Um, particularly estuarial uh, riverbeds uh, are owned by the duchies of Cornwall or Lancaster or the, the Crown Estate. Um, but also there's plenty of examples of um, l- uh, large aristocratic landowners who own rivers. So, for example, um, what I was looking at recently is the Duke of Wellington, who owns quite a lot of the River Loddon in Hampshire. I think that might be something that Nick's been looking at as well of late. No, it is. <laughs> and, and it's sort of... Um, you know, I, I, I do just find it, you know, fascinating that, that that someone can actually own a river. I mean, maybe not the water that's passing through it, uh, which actually makes it the, the river that it, it is, but but the the, the, the land, the, the riverbed underneath it, the land to one side of it, you know, the banks and so on. And obviously, as, as was mentioned in the question, there are um, can sometimes be third party fishing rights also related to that, which may or may not be held by the, the freehold landowner. Or maybe um, owned by another by another property owner. So all of this sounds all a bit like you know. I've never really thought of it. I've thought about access, you know. But then you start to think actually, it's it's really interesting because it does kind of boil down to some very serious kind of questions, like you know, who? Yeah, th- th- this is ours, you know. And, and especially with rivers, it seems it seems really bizarre. Nick, you were going to come in. Sorry, I kind of cut across you a moment there. Well, I mean, it's it's mental. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, and even William Blackstone, in his commentaries on the law of England in 17-whatever, uh, basically says as much. He says, like, uh, you know, uh, it's kind of a solipsism to describe uh, water as property, but to make it uh, property, we have to pretend that it's land. Uh, and so the 
the sort of the rules of ownership of a river is that it um if i own the riverbank because i own the land that the river goes through uh i own also up till halfway uh into the river mm-hmm. so if i'm a kayaker and i uh float uh into your property uh even though i'm floating uh on water which is owned by the crown which does basically mean owned by the people um mm-hmm. If I if I float into your half of the river, then I need your written permission. But then if I if I just paddle a bit further on downstream and I get into uh, Lord uh, whatever's uh, land, then I also need their written permission. Mm. Uh, and so for a kayak trip, you know, if you go, I could go like you need 10, a book. You need a whole Bible uh, of signatures of people. But the point is, what right do they have? Uh, to give me or you or just basically everyone else except for them uh, permission. And it goes back to, um, you know, we're looking into the River Loddon because uh, there's a very interesting uh, Stratfield Say, which was owned uh, or given to Lord uh, Wellington, Wellington, uh, was also um, uh, at one time in the 1720s, uh, the focus of what were called uh, the Black Protests, which is where commoners of the formerly common ground around that area uh, in Hampshire and Berkshire predominantly suddenly fought back in actually quite violent ways and uh, committed uh, trespass on their horses whilst having cold their faces. And uh, also a number of them wearing women's uh, clothing because <laughs> women's clothing was a sort of sign of uh, sedition against the, pat- the the sort of paternalism oh, wow. of authority and, uh, and property. Um, but what they were rebelling against was the, uh, the restriction, the removal of their right to subsistence, which is essentially... Yeah, take uh, away their whole life. Yeah, to to put a rabbit in the pot, to put a deer in the pot, to um, all of that kind of thing. And what property had become at that stage, and it was fresh in the cast at that stage, uh, it had turned not into just ownership of the land, but every single facet of the land that could be sold yeah. uh, or rented out to people was, all, was sort of um, separated and sold as separate things so the fishing rights or the rights to hunt game uh, or the rights to mine minerals or all of this kind of thing and so that leads us to a situation where the ability to uh float in a river uh is not something that has ever been defined as something that you could rent for whereas property is very comfortable the notion of property the philosophy of mm. property is very comfortable with having a an area of land uh that a person can fish from and to say to stand in this area of land or to have rights on this area of land and not be thrown off and not be uh a- accused of stealing or poaching uh, I can rent that to you for a certain amount a day and I can make money off that property is comfortable with that but a kayaker just silently without harm without mm. uh you know without any like no one leaves no trace like a kayaker you know we yeah. don't even leave footprints mm. uh to sail through these rigid uh particularized segments of ownership just makes a mockery 
of the concept that you can own nature. Yeah. But could, could I could I just answer uh, those specific questions? I think uh, to the person that said, uh, "Can I fish uh, yeah. from my kayak?" I I would assume the answer is uh, no. Unfortunately, not. You can't because especially fishing rights. Uh, and I think in a justified way to, to to be allowed to you know to sort of remove fish stock or, or that kind of thing, in my opinion, is something uh that for environmental concerns uh, as much as anything that uh you should have a license for or you should contribute to the health mm. of that fish stock um but your presence alone on the river uh unless you have permission is not allowed mm. and to the person that was talking about bailiffs chucking them off i spoke to uh the very very awesome reverend caffin who has written his master's thesis on uh, the, uh, the, the, the our right of access to rivers. And he said that um, the people that rent the fishing rights off the landowner have a right not to exclude other people, but they have a right to peaceable enjoyment. And so if uh, the person that uh, messaged us... Yeah, Pete it was, yeah. Peter, if, uh, if, if Pete wasn't spoiling someone's peaceable enjoyment uh then he was committing no harm other than trespass mm. but the person that threw him off was acting as they say ultra vires which is more you know to translate the latin loosely beyond his manhood to to throw him off he had absolutely no right to do that okay. what he should have done is call the landowner or the landowner's representatives who would come down tell him to bugger off if he didn't bugger off then then you tell the police. We are we have become inured to this type of authority and this type of uh, uh, brash treatment, and we have become obedient, uh, even though uh, the law doesn't even require uh, us to be. Yeah, that's really interesting. So, yeah, Greg is coming in. Oh, sorry, I'm just going to ask this quick question here. So, so Greg, and, and I'll get you. Excuse me, guy. I'm, I'm sorry. Um, Greg is saying, you know, he's saying. Is this really all about? Isn't this really all about money? And I get the feeling what you're saying is this isn't about money. This is deeper. This is more principles. And well, maybe it started off a little bit to do with that. I don't know. What do you think? What do you take about that? No, it's all about money. I think really? this is for them uh, originally, for, for the people that make yeah. money out of it. But um, how come their private profit profit is more important uh, than the mental, physical, and spiritual health of a nation? Uh, like rivers have been proved to be the single most, even above woodlands, uh, the single most uh, calming uh, and relaxing environment. It's something about the yeah, sound, I think, that, of the yeah. water. Everyone knows, everyone knows what science is now beginning to prove, that being immersed in nature uh, can give you a kind of philosophical perspective on your own life, can just give you a, a sort of wipe clean uh, of mm. what's going on in your head can just feel a uh, mate i was on the cook cook me down in uh um yesterday we just did we kayaked all the way to the sea and just to watch the uh the river open up uh into the ocean uh mm. was something like elation but it was yeah. really calm what yeah that's the beautiful thing about canoeing i find that you know like this peace tranquility is very very deep and it's very strange it's very odd a guy i can see you sh you know nodding and nodding and nodding you know obviously you agree with nick you you've written a book together right 
I mean, actually, I mean, Nick's just said what I was I was going to come in and interject with, which is obviously this is we're talking about rights and, you know, why are we being excluded? But, you know, this isn't just about points of principle here. This is about the, as, as Nick says, the absolute, the amazing impact of being in nature and the, and the benefits that it brings and the health benefits and what that means for everyone. And obviously during lockdown, you know, we've had a, a massive demonstration of that, of, of both how vital it is uh, to be able to have access to nature, to green space, to clean air, uh, to get outside, to get away from you know screens and so on. Um, and um, and yet also the demonstration of how unequal that access is, because you know not everyone has access to a garden, um, not you know, poorer communities, black communities, Asian communities, particularly in, in, in places like London, have been uh, you know a much uh, a great great disadvantage from uh, wealthier uh, people and communities who had more access to to green space and. You know, I think I think equally also there is this this ongoing chilling effect that the law of trespass has um, and the huge concentration of ownership has on deterring people from thinking that the countryside is there for them to all enjoy. Um, you know, we feel unwelcome in the countryside by the profusion of keep out signs uh, of, of barbed wire fences and, and the occasional sign that says trespasses will be prosecuted. And technically, trespasses cannot be currently prosecuted um, because actually to, to be prosecuted rather than simply sued by the landowner, um, mm. you have to be able to take it to court. Now, trespass is a civil offence at the moment. It allows mm. you to be sued by the landowner if they so wish to and if they you know, think that they that they can you know, take you to court and, and, and get you on, on some, some ground around criminal damage or whatever. Unfortunately, as bad as things are right now, as we've been talking about with access to the countryside, it could be about to get a whole lot worse because what the government has proposed, Conservatives put in their manifesto uh, out before the election and what they started to consult on before the election was that they wanted to criminalise trespass. Mm, I know about this, yeah. Against the state. And mm. I don't know about people on this, um, missing it this year, but to me, the idea that simply to go onto someone else's land or river not cause any damage whatsoever. Of course, we're not condoning anything like that or litter or anything like that. We absolutely before that. But just simply to go onto someone else's land, to walk, to enjoy nature and so on. Uh, to make that an offence against the state that needs to involve the police, that does not seem right. That just seems so draconian. And I, and I just really hope that if people haven't here uh, yet seen the trespass petition that um, uh, Nick and I put on the parliamentary petitions website, you can go onto that and you can search for don't criminalise trespass. Please add your names to that. Um, the, the Home Office consultation, the government hasn't responded to it yet and come out with what they're definitely going to do about it. So there is time still to try and put pressure on the government and say, this isn't what we want. Um, mm. I just think that would be a, a, an awful chilling effect on people's willingness to go into the countryside to yeah. access, access land. It is, it's terrible. And, and, and absolutely, we're going to get, yeah, so, so we're going to get that link of yours put up on our stuff. And also here you can sign up our petition for clear mm -hmm. access, clear waters and get on that. But this is this is really interesting. So I'm going to bring a comment here from Heather Clatworthy. So she says she's a, an open water, long distance swimmer. Um, and basically she believes um, where there is a legal public access and egress point, the river there is to be used for all, for leisure. It should be used fairly and responsibly. And I think that kind of comes through in, in the chats that I've had. You know, this is about stewardship, right? This is about, you know, we're not saying, we're not trying to take the take the mickey. You know, this is actually just about what's good for us, but also what's fair, but also we can do good being in these places, right? 
there's an old story written by landowners and uh, projected, uh, you know, through the megaphones of the uh, papers that they own, uh, that the public constitute a threat to the uh, ecology of the countryside, uh, that the public are vandals, that they cannot be trusted. Uh, and, uh, you know, you can put uh, absolutely the recent people, masses of people coming to the countryside uh, with their disposable barbecues or uh, their litter, and you can use them as the uh, reasons why people, why the you know the the millions of other people uh, that use the countryside uh, should not be allowed to do so. There's there's two answers to that. One is uh, you know the uh, the pesticides that are flooding the rivers uh, weren't put there by kayakers; they were put mm. there by landowners. Uh, you know, the, the decline in woodland wasn't down to ramblers carrying chainsaws and wantonly uh, just sort of raising miles of woodland to the ground. It was done by landowners trying to turn a profit uh, via industrial agriculture. But the real re- that's that's just going to anger people to uh, to bring that <laughs> point up. So even though it happens to be the bare truth, that's that's not the angle we'll be going for. Uh, the real thing is that um, the majority of people that use the countryside love it. They genuinely love it. Mm. Like they love their pets or their yeah. sisters or, you know, it's a huge part of their life. Uh, the litter offends them just as much as everyone else. We need to teach the countryside code. And more than that, we need to tell people not just to not litter and to leave no trace but to actively clear it up when you're going for a walk, it doesn't take much. Mm. And if the if the same amount of airspace and volume was given to encouraging people to uh, to clean up the litter or to or to care for the countryside, if only people would be given the chance, uh, I think we'd blow that argument out of the water. But of course, all landowners want to do is just scream that from the top of their mountains and and refuse children uh, the right to take some of their lessons, some of their biology lessons or geography lessons outside in nature, uh, you know, without permission from the landowner or without uh, sort of renting a day's access to these places. How can children learn how to care uh, for yeah. the caterpillars they find crawling over their hands or the moths that they... Uh, you know, that they catch at, at night in those big nets in Suffolk kind of thing. How can that be possible for humans to actually understand with a visceral relationship uh, and, and love that they have for nature? Uh, and therefore, what goes with that is the responsibility that we have to it, unless they're actually given access to it. Yeah. And that's really, it's, it's, it's quite reasonable. I guess, you know, clear access, clear was to me, it's just really difficult to argue against it. We'll give us access, you know, which is okay to do, which is a fair thing to do, and we'll look after it. Trust us, you know, we're not, we're not, we're not terrible people. You know, and there's some, a lot of support for you guys coming in on the chat. We've, Ben has put the, uh, your, your petition in the chat, but we've had Chris Appleby talking about how, you know, criminalizing access would, would affect his mental health, you know, and it's just a, you know, terrible. And then Denise Pentland is here making a really good point here. You know, it's basically so important that people can access the outdoors for health, both mental and physical. And surely this pandemic, you know, that's why I'm hopeful for you guys and all of us, actually, that this pandemic is shaking things up and making people think, actually, 
does this have to be like this? You know, and actually, what are the things that are really important to us? And actually, what's stopping us? And, uh, you know, I, I don't know. Guy, I know you've, you know, th- th- this, this, this whole subject, do you, do, you, do you get angry about it? Or do you kind of just go, I, I know what to do here? Because you guys have got, you know, similar, it seems like a similar kind of angle to what the British canoeing are taking here. It's just a reasonable angle, right? But you can still get a bit, I think um, don't don't get mad get even Um, you know I think I think some of the responses to my book was that um, these are kind of this is a you know kind of radical foaming at the mouth kind of lefty Um, but to me it's it's common sense it's you know it's about saying they're not making land anymore Uh, we have to look after it it's finite you know we we have to pass it on to um, future generations in a better state than we found it we need to restore nature Many landowners um, talk about how they are the rightful stewards and custodians of the land. Great if you're doing a brilliant job with it, but I think people need to be held to account for that and not just sort of use that as an excuse for continuing to own land and exclude others from it. And there are some wonderful landowners out there. Uh, don't get me wrong, this isn't just a sort of, uh, it's, it's, this is about challenging the system rather than individual landowners. Many of whom can be wonderful. There's you know, fantastic work being done. You know, the Nepa state that we hear about uh, a lot in the papers at, at the moment by Charles Burrell and Isabella Tree to rewild their countries, their, their, their estate. It's absolutely phenomenal. You know, uh, there are, I've seen um, farmers uh, posting uh, tweets on Twitter during lockdowns sort of saying, look, we obviously find it challenging when sort of perhaps new people are coming into the countryside in greater numbers, particularly during the pandemic. Uh, but we absolutely uh, re- recognize and want them to be able to take. Uh, exercise safely and enjoy the landscape and putting up nice signs as well as the many uh you know more more aggressive signs that i think we've seen so i think there is there is hope absolutely and um there's, there's wonderful people to work with uh within the landowner community within the landowners within farming community and so on as well um but i think what it, what this is really about is reconnecting people to nature we've been so alienated for, for so long in cities behind screens you know we 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 need to be able to you know break this cycle of being cut off from nature and i think that that's what's interesting to me is i started to think there when you were talking though it's a kind of like a bit of a contempt or a a real lack of faith in people that you assume that people who are on this land are going to mess it up when in fact that's a really dark way of looking at human beings what i i think human beings are lovely you know most people are nice if you treat them nicely if you treat them bad they're not very nice. And if you treat them badly for a long time, they may be really quite unpleasant. And, you know, to me, this is like, again, those signs that you were talking about. You know, if you assume people are going to be good and you start off in that way, very often, you, you know, sometimes you might be stung. But most often you'll be rewarded if you take the time to notice that actually these people have left no trace. You might never see them except you leave their, you know, their barbecue or whatever. Do you know what I mean? That's totally uncool. So it's that sort of, to me, that's what kind of starts me off a little bit here. And that's where, when we talked a little bit about money earlier on, to me, it's a bit deeper. It's about how we see other people. To me, it's about that power, you know, and, and things like that. But of course, it, you know, money is a, money is a great, a great thing to, to exert power. Uh, Nick, I was going to ask you a question earlier, but a little bit, if you don't mind. Um, in your book, you talk about paddling on the River Kennet and how you got to kind of understand a little bit more about access in, in, in the canoeing, you know, paddle sports, canoeing, kayaking, stand-up paddleboarding, whatever you want to go down the river in. Just, yeah, can you tell me a little bit about that? Because I, I thought people would like to know. I would love to. Can I just jump in and say, uh, on the last point, uh, mm. The lockdown uh, and uh, the COVID-19, not just across our country, but across the world, uh, hasn't just proven 
the uh, the connection between access to space and social justice, uh, and how just how desperately we need uh, open space for our mental health. But it's also proven just how quickly uh, societies can change their norm, their baseline, mm. uh, and what we find uh, acceptable and what the etiquette is. If the government put as much effort into uh, telling us to, to you know, so, you know, the countryside code, to leave the gates as you found them, to uh, keep your dog on a lead during this month and this month, watch out for ground nesting birds, uh, you know, here and during this season, the public's attitude would change to it. You would pick up your neighbour's litter uh, because that is just what everyone else would do for you. But anyway... Uh... No, no, thank you very much. I really, <laughs> really appreciate that. And I, I think it's really interesting because there is a huge thing here to do with covid and social justice and, and, and racial justice. You touched on that earlier, Guy. I was really pleased for you to bring that in because people are seeing, you know, they're thinking for the first time, there's a little bit of a, like, some of these things are connected, actually, and they're all kind of actually very strongly connected if you start to look. And, um, yeah, so sorry, I'm just I'm, I'm super glad you brought that up because that's, you know, again, it, it, this is, we're talking about rivers, right? But then all of a sudden we end up talking about all this other stuff that's actually, it's like, you can't escape it if you look into this stuff. Could could I just <laughs> go on? No, no, Sorry, no, no. But on race, because it is one of the you know this is something that we're uh, concentrating on in the countryside. There are more barriers uh, to your enjoyment of the countryside than just the walls that block you from access. Uh, the statistics about uh, BAME uh, communities are shocking in terms of how many. Uh, are represented through living in the countryside but also how many just point bog standard feel unwelcome in the countryside uh and this you know finally england the scales are falling from our eyes and there's like now this genuine i hope public conversation about uh our england's responsibility as slave traders uh and uh sugar barons uh, and not just the sort of, you know, the great William Wilberforce emancipators, which is uh, all we seem to talk to ourselves about. But when compensation was play paid to the slavers, uh, £20 million in those days, something, I mean, the estimates are different for how much, but we just finished paying it off in 2015. When those vast amounts of money were paid uh, as compensation to the slave owners for the removal of their property, and this was the first time that slaves were actually defined as property in English law. Uh, it was a massive victory for the slavers. And what they did was went and bought up a load more land, passed a load more enclosure acts uh, in uh, Parliament. Slavery put up walls around common land in England. This notion that the uh, working class uh, are, are somehow... Uh, this notion of white supremacy or that, uh, you know, uh, people that are white are in any way uh, superior uh, to uh, like people of any other uh, ethnic origin is just another smokescreen to conceal the fact that working class, that the working class of England have been robbed uh, of their livelihoods and uh, and their connection with nature or their connect or really the value of their labour on the land that they were working. All of this was severed by the vast amount of money that just enclosed more of the English countryside mm. through the profits of slavery. So one, it's no wonder that BAME people don't feel welcome 
in the countryside when so many of the manor houses are essentially just monuments to white supremacy. Mm. That sounds like uh, aggrandizing or like melodramatic speak, but it's it's not. The village mm. that I grew up in in West Berkshire uh, was built not on Afro-Caribbean slavery, but on uh, East Indian col- colonialism. Uh, the, the wealth of Cosim Bazaar in India is behind brick walls in 400 acres of beautiful common land, meadow pasture land uh, that was owned by a dude called Francis Sykes, who just, uh, who literally, uh, William Cobbett has the proof in his parliamentary uh, uh, commentaries, uh, who literally stole uh, from Cosim Bazaar, like uh, sort of fiddled the taxes and stuff. And all of that wealth is literally behind these walls in my little village. It's called Upper Basildon. Why the hell? Like, mm. it's a tiny little thing. The f- the fact that people feel unwelcome in the countryside uh, of BAME origin uh, it is something that seriously needs addressing. And there's a group called Land in Our Names who are looking at BAME access to land in terms of reparation, which is high, high time because we owe the descendants of the people uh, who we enslaved or who we whose countries we plundered we owe them a connection to the land for their mental health for their physical health and by way of some kind of reparation to to set the balance straight yeah guy go on you, you know i can see you, you wanted to come in i'm really grateful for you bringing this up because i think the scales as you say are being lifted from a massive number of the that our British public, you know, people are starting to think, and that has actually opened my eyes. I didn't quite know, you know, about that particular aspect. And the the injustice is, is you can start to kind of start to just get a tiny feel for this as you start to layer, take the layers off. Guy, go on, please go on. Keep, keep going. I, I, only to add one other thing to what Nick was just saying was that, I mean, the Office for National Statistics brought out some new stats the other day, just looking at inequalities of access and, you know, came up with the stat that black people in England are nearly four times as likely as white people to have no outdoor space at home. So, you know, we're talking there about the history and we're talking about how those inequalities are, are, are you know, visited down into the present. So, yeah, um, just, you know, as Nick said, Land in Our Names is a brilliant organisation doing stuff mm. around this. Uh, Wild in the City, um, founded by Beth Collier, also um, brilliant writer on aspect issues around uh, mental health in in nature and reconnecting to nature and working with black communities to try and reconnect people to space in the green belt for example um doing lots of brilliant work on this so just wanted to do a shout out for for her as well uh, thank you and, and and perhaps if you could uh, just email us the links for this some of these things we can definitely try and get them in the chat because this is now such a hot topic people just want to know you know they're yep. starting to to know that there's so much that they don't know you know and i believe many of us are on this journey i'm definitely on this journey i just want to know more because i can just see but guys I, i'm afraid we're coming you know we've been talking for a long time and it's, oh man i'm absolutely gutted i just want to you know just can you briefly tell me what's next for you guys what's next on the project and you know and i just encourage everybody who's listening please look at look, look up these guys work on the internet try and find, because honestly some of this stuff is once you start getting into it, it's really, really fascinating. And it's so interesting, the kind of connection to our sport and our struggle to get on the rivers and, and lakes and waterways. But go on, lads, what, what do you reckon? Tell me what's next, uh, what's exciting you coming up? Uh, I'll start with Nick first and then I'll ask Guy. 
Um, my book is out on the 20th of August uh, uh, of this Good year. Good plug, like it. <laughs> uh, but only, only because an hour is not enough, unfortunately, uh, to weave together. The, the bare fact is that land uh, underlies every other power structure uh, that operates in England. Uh, Henry George uh, is is the sort of uh, grandfather of uh, land reform, uh, and he he basically expressed it as, as as soon as you've seen the importance of land to every other political and power operation, uh, you, you you can't unsee it. You that it, it just all comes back down to that. So race, gender, class. What my book tries to do is sort of uh, by hopping the walls of all the dukes, the lords, the private corporations, the media magnates that own England, uh, it tries to uh, weave together that narrative to sort of prove to people how every other operation uh, of power is uh, is always rooted in land. But for me, that starts the, that's the starter pistol uh, for the campaign that hopefully Guy will talk about. <laughs> Cued him in perfect. Go on, Guy. Sure. Well, I mean, I think what we're what we're really looking to do. Well, we we mentioned already how the government is trying to criminalise trespass, and obviously, what we want to do is see that off. Um, off the back of what we hope will, if we can win that fight, uh, we really like. You know, it's twenty years since the Countryside and Rights of Way Act was brought in. You know, it, it's high time that actually we saw extensions to right to roam, not just be satisfied with being squeezed into kind of right to roam on only 8% of land in England. Uh, and, and as Nick said earlier, and as your you know, British Canoeing's Clear Waters and Clear clear Access, Clear Waters campaign, sorry, uh, shows there's so little access to rivers and waterways as well, that it's really high time to start opening up that up and starting to show, you know, particularly post-lockdown um, post uh, and in the time of climate emergency that we really need to kind of reconnect people to nature for, for mental and physical health and so that they you know that, that you can see the benefits of nature and, and, and reconnect to nature for why we want to um, restore it as well so so what we what we're looking to do is and we really want, want everyone's help with this you know we're developing ideas for how we push for this at the moment as you say next book is out later in the year we're hoping there may be a, a website forthcoming it's not the one which is just coming up world in the city is the wonderful organization i mentioned earlier that's uh, that's another organization but um, which is brilliant to look at as well when we hopefully will launch a website later this year looking at um, trying to push for an extension to right to roam um, and also uh, be encouraging people to to get involved whether that's uh, through petitions or potentially uh, going on rambles together uh, and start to kind of learn about this and push for for greater right to the uh, right of access to the countryside i guess in the meantime i would obviously also just really encourage people to um, sign your guys petition you know to sign the petition for clear access and clear waters and you know it's a brilliant campaign um fully behind it and you know more power to you thank you oh guys honestly i'm inspired i actually want to go and learn some more about this it's, you know th this is super super fascinating not just from where i am you know personally with my activism and, and, and what i'm learning about but it's just you know once you once you know something you can't unknow it right and once you start to see something you can't unsee it and i think you guys are have opened my eyes to some of this stuff that many of our guests Thank you so much for everyone who's watching and people watching again. Thank you so, so much. But I'm going to start to wrap it up. So thank you so much, gents. I just want to say, you know, it's really, really good to have you in here. Uh, I'm just super, super happy. I think, you know, this is a subject close to our hearts, you know, for paddlers all over England and the home nations. This is just going to be interesting because I believe actually paddle sports, people, canoeists, kayakers, stand-up paddle boys, we're all kind of 
independent thinking people we want to ask questions and we kind of like you know don't don't like to don't like to just you know take an answer and not think about it so this has really been fantastic food for thought so thank you so much for coming along i'm just going to say next week we're going to be joined with two amazing paddlers in their own right darren clarks and king is the only paddler to have kayaked all of the rivers that flow off the everest along uh, with K2 and Nick Ray, who's an adventurer and sea kayaker who lives on the wonderful Isle of Mull. And so these guys are going to be coming to join me next week, next Thursday, seven o'clock. Please come along and talk. They're going to talk about their adventures and how paddling has improved their mental well-being and state of mind. But first of all, and last of all, really, actually, gents, Nick Hayes, Guy Shroll, thank you for coming in and uh yeah really uh kind of opening our eyes up here british canoeing and telling us all about this and yeah beautiful stuff thank you guys thank you for the opportunity thank you cheers good night everybody see ya we're off for another week